Hello, friends of Soul Kitchen. Thank you for listening to my podcast. My name is Jasper Mutsaerts. I'm an entrepreneur, adventurer, coach, and wisdom seeker. With Soul Kitchen, I interview people that inspire me. From TED speakers to social entrepreneurs, from activists to artists, from dreamers to seekers, from business people to spiritual teachers. With Soul Kitchen, I empower people to live their quest. Each episode contains a recipe for life. What is your quest? So, uh, welcome, friends, to a new episode of Soul Kitchen. Today, I'm meeting Susie Palmer, who is a community programmer at Casa Era. Casa Era is the place where we will host the first Soul Kitchen retreat. She's also an internal family system practitioner, a Kundalini and Yin yoga teacher and passionate about sound healing. And um, we have actually never met in real life before because someone else recommended me to uh, host a retreat on Casa Era. And since I trusted this recommendation, I decided to uh, collaborate with Susie, even though we had never met uh, before. And today I'm curious to hear about uh, her story, passion, her vision for Casa Era, what activities they're hosting there. And um, from a personal point of view, I'm also very interested in family systems. I've done a little bit of work with family systems, but I definitely want to know uh, know more. And um, yeah, so um, how did you end up in uh, in Portugal, being a community programmer at uh, Casa Era? How how did it happen? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's um, it's an honor to be here. Um, I ended up in Portugal because seven years ago, six six or seven years ago, 2016, um, my partner invited me to go on a trip to the south of France, like to the countryside of France. And I said, oh, I would love to do that. And then at the last minute... He changed the trip to uh, to Portugal, and I was kind of like, "Okay, I've heard of Portugal. I think it's cool, but uh, I really wanted to go to France. Like, what's what's happening?" And we spent a week in Lisbon and uh, a weekend in the Azores, and we just really fell in love with it. It was our first um, trip outside of New York together, early in our relationship, and. A few months later, Trump was elected back in the U.S. in the U.S. and kind of caught us off guard. We hadn't expected it, and we just started joking. The jokes just started coming in, like, "Oh, you know, we're gonna move to Portugal. We don't, we don't have to deal with this." And um, Andy read the book "Stealing Fire," and then "Sapiens" by. Uh, Noah Yuval Hariri, and the other book, I forget the other book by him, it's the other one, Um, and just really started feeling inspired to explore this idea of Portugal more as he felt a calling to, um, to do more with his life that would have a bigger impact and reach more people. We had both connected through shared experiences in plant medicine and felt that it had made some huge shifts in our life. And 
wanted to change. So we started each year, we started going to Portugal for one month, then two months, slowly building community, looking at land um, each year. And Andy moved before me. He actually moved in 2019. And I was still dragging my feet. I owned a vintage store and community uh, space in Brooklyn that I had had for 10 years. And so I was always kind of like, oh, I'll be right behind you. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the pandemic happened. And so we were separated for a while until I could get my visa. And then kind of, uh, kind of feels like it all happened really fast. At the end, I got the visa. I came in 2021. And yeah, so it's been about two years now of uh, growth at Casa Aira. And here here I am living in Portugal. That's a beautiful story. So you both lived in the U.S. before mm-hmm. you felt a calling to move to Europe. We had connected uh, through plant medicine and you were inspired by the book Sapiens. I typically... Uh, I don't often finish books, but I read part of them and then I get kind of distracted or inspired by something else. But I read part of Sapiens and in the book, they say that uh, what sets humans apart from other species, one of the things is that we believe in stories or we can create collective stories that bind us together. So countries are stories, organizations are stories that you can believe in. But what is kind of the story that Casa Aira wants to share with the world or what is the collective uh, vision? Yeah, great question. Um, Yeah, I loved that part of the book too, kind of talking about how we were united around this myth and where humanity is kind of looking for a new myth and what to believe in. And this was the, uh, this was the beginning of the vision. Um, I'm thinking in like two different lines of thought now, because the first inspiration was more this story of um, collective living, like what's a model that can actually be helpful for the earth long term. And it's more of this collective tribal living a little bit outside of the city. So that's kind of the vision we started with looking for land was to have more of a healing commune space. Um, And as the search continued, we ended up finding Casa Aira and falling in love with Casa Aira, which is far from a commune. Um, But the vision kind of adapted to the place because we fell in love with the land there, with the sea, uh, the beach at Sao Juliao is just incredible. The people in Aracera really felt like home. So at that point, the story kind of grew to be more of a retreat center where we could also have that communal experience in between retreats by just offering events for the community. And I think the the story now that we want to offer with Casa Aira is that um, that community connection is kind of the root of healing for us in in our lives. This this sense of belonging by coming together with others in your community, supporting each other getting to know each other um, in a consistent way has been such a source of healing 
in my life. And I think you need some support. Like we really want Casa Aira to feel like a coming home. And many, many, many people tell us they've had their, um, they've had some of their most positive life-changing moments there in community. And so it's kind of this, this, for me right now, I'm seeing like this vision of just a collective hug. Like I want it to be a place where people feel like they can come home and be supported enough to do that work of looking inside and reflecting and seeing if they can bring um, little, little changes of growth and hope into their future. So I hear words like community, healing, and a vision of a collective uh, hug. I like that uh, uh, vision. And um, uh, recently I was in uh, Costa Rica at a vision festival, as I uh, mentioned to you by email. And I met someone from America. I think he was from San Diego, and he specialized in uh, in, in hugging. And he's promoting the concept of, lo of longer hugs, so it's a minimum 20 seconds. Because he says if you hug someone for minimum 20 seconds, I think you feel more love, you feel more happiness, and he's he's organizing those those hugging um, um, yeah, uh, rituals. Um, but what what role does hugging play in your in your life, or why did you choose the word collective hug? Yeah, great question. Um, so I kind of I'm very um, I'm very visual. Sometimes I'm speaking and I'm following stories and pictures in my head at the same time. And as I had these thoughts coming, that's just what I was seeing. I think hugging doesn't play a big enough role in my life. I think I need to get better at doing the longer hug. It's more of an American thing to do the hug here. It's more the, the two quick kisses. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a good invitation to bring in longer hugs. I do try to do the left to left hug. So your hearts are connected. Ah. And I know that when you do the longer hug, you actually allow um, your parasympathetic nervous system to be activated and to feel that sensation that it's okay to relax, that you're safe. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's something that I... Um... I don't do it uh, too regularly, but sometimes indeed in this communal spaces, it's kind of encouraged. And then I really feel how important it is to belong to a community, to stand still and, and, and take time to hug. Yeah, I would say our community has led Casa Aira more than Andy and I have led the vision for Casa Aira. We have followed um, what's happened very organically mm. because we came in with different ideas about what we wanted to offer, what we wanted to bring. But the first year was still kind of easing out of the pandemic. And so we had just a lot of friends and family visiting. We were fixing the house, trying to make improvements, trying to prepare. Um, and then we got to know this incredible community of people in Aracera who actually it all came out of this group of um it's open to everyone it's called the lucky dip and every morning at 8 30 they go for a swim in the ocean 365 days of the year and we met these people and became friends with them and now we hardly ever go to the lucky dip anymore uh -huh. but just slowly through all these different people that showed up we met so many others in Aracera. Um, people started asking us, hey, can we have a barbecue? Can we have a birthday there? 
we just got to know people better and better. And um, yeah, it really feels like we fell into a community that's just growing and expanding all the time. And um, yeah, I, you know, we never actually advertise like so far everything has been super organic like lisa contacting because she had been at something at casa aira and probably at some point we will but um yeah it's just been people that we met or friends of friends um coming to us so that's felt really cool to be like i feel like we're stewards of the of the place we have a rule, actually. We have one rule for our for our programming. We have said no to a few people. So we feel like um, in order to keep the energy clean and for Casa Aira to have, um, I don't know, some kind of purpose in line with Andy and I, we only allow events that at least one of us would want to participate in if we had the time and space. So sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, but it has to be something that we feel like, yes, this is really, um, we, we respect the people holding space here. We respect the vision and we trust them and we think they're offering something good. So, yeah. Wow. I like it. I think it's good to have this, uh, uh, kind of selection criteria that is close to your heart that if you're excited about it or if you're inspired that you offer to the world i think that makes a lot of uh, uh, sense and um, in terms of community that you've been creating so with the retreats is it mostly people from every syra that, that come or are there also people from i don't know other countries coming to to your house or how is the international diversity yeah it's um I feel like it's about at the beginning was half and half. Now it's probably more local, but um, we last year we had um, an executive coach from LA come who was a friend of a friend who had heard about our place and wanted to host um, a retreat there. We also had a yoga teacher come from Arizona, and both of them had people coming from, um, you know, of course, the U.S., but also Canada and England. We have Family Constellations team, um, Johan Smets and Clarence Smets, his daughter, and he's from Belgium, and he studied Family Constellations directly with Bert Hellinger. So um, it's really, really powerful work. I did it just so I could understand better how to explain the difference between the work that I do as an IFS practitioner and family constellations. Um, but it was really special. And it's really special to do it with a, with a family team too. Claren does the yoga. Um, and then we've had breath work from Matthias Rojan, who's from Germany, but currently living in Arisera. And more yoga from an Irish couple that came. Yeah, it's a lot of yoga and meditation and um, really juicy stuff. 
So you talked about the topic of uh, family systems that I um, have been interested in since a few years. So what is actually the difference between family systems and the internal uh, family systems that you are practicing? So family systems, I think, is a type of psychotherapy that's looking um, that I have no training in at all. Internal family systems was developed by a family systems therapist, Richard Schwartz, in the 1980s. But it's looking at the interior of each person as being composed of parts. And so he kind of saw that there were patterns and relationships in his patients um, and identified that we all have an internal family system. I don't really connect so much to the language of the of the family. It's not like I have a, a father part and a mother part inside me. It's more like I have... Um, I have an angry part. I have a really depressed part. I have um, I have a an anxious part, and these parts have their whole histories and selves and stories. Um, internal family systems looks at each person as having a core self, which is kind of like the soul in different traditions like Buddhism. And the self has the qualities of calm, connectedness, confidence, courage, curiosity, compassion. And anything that's not one of these qualities is considered to not be self. It's considered to be an example of a part. And so internal family systems is um, working through a line of questioning to identify what parts are active in the person coming in and then getting to know these parts, finding them in the body, focusing on the part, bringing your attention to it, and asking these parts to share more of their story. How did they learn to behave in this way? It's kind of looking at reactions, um, I like to give the example of like you're driving down the road really relaxed and calm and then someone cuts you off and without awareness maybe you yell or you know give them the finger or something right it's just an automatic reaction that's an example of an angry part of you taking over, taking the wheel from you literally and reacting because of all the times that's happened before in their life or other experiences of having people cut them off or taking away their power that feels unfair, unjust. So with time, you can get to know that part like, oh, um, why do you do that? Where did you learn to react that way? And you discover that all these parts are trying to protect you. They're trying to help you the best way they know how. But by actually speaking to them, getting to know them better, you can bring up compassion because you suddenly you hear like, oh, you watched, you know, someone in your family respond that way and you learned this behavior and you've adopted it. You bring in more compassion from the self. And slowly you increase your awareness 
and have more space to choose. Is that really how I want to respond when someone cuts me off? Is that really helping me? Would I rather notice that part, say, okay, thank you. Actually, I've got it. I'm okay. Continue on the way. Um, For me, I really fell into it because it mimics very closely what I experience on plant medicine or psychedelics to happen naturally for people, um, which is to kind of have more perspective within yourself to notice the different parts of you that are active in your system in speaking. Um, You know, a lot of people encounter a critical voice inside their head under plant medicine and kind of say, wow, you know, you've, you've been here for a really long time. Like, why are you talking to me this way? Like, can we, can we improve this a little bit? Um, So a lot of times on plant medicine, these parts are able to relax. You're actually, so on psychedelics and on plant medicine, um, the fight or flight modes and the ego is able to relax a little bit more. And so these parts, a lot of these parts, they formed in response to a threat, in response to some kind of trauma. And they're still kind of stuck in the past. When something uh, triggers them, they just kind of take over and relax. And when you're in these alternate states of consciousness where the fight or flight mode and the ego has kind of taken a backseat. The self state of this compassion, this groundedness, this connection um, is more present. And I see that as, as everyone's essence is who they are without all of these reactive states and that you can achieve more of that in many ways, right? Like plant medicine is kind of a shortcut for a lot of people, but it comes with significant risk. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. Yoga, meditation, breath work um, are other paths that I think consistently really connect us to our core self, to our essence. They also take a lot of um, a lot of patience some more than others, right? And I really connected to internal family systems because I just, it's the safest and most effective and consistent means I have found to create this direct path of access to the self, which is by noticing all the other parts that are that are there when I have a, a client come in. Um, the first step is just to notice what's alive for them inside in that moment. Um, so for example, I was I've been doing this for a while and I still really struggle to explain it. So I appreciate the practice and your and your patience. For example, right now, I have a nervous part in my stomach that just kind of has this, this energy going. Right. And it's like, Oh, 
what am I saying? Does it make sense? What is he going to ask me next? <laughs> and I'm, a, I'm aware of this part, right? And I'm just kind of trying internally to send a little love and appreciation. This part is trying to help me. It's afraid that I'm going to say something crazy or stupid and embarrass myself, right? So it's here showing up to say, oh, be careful, be careful. What are you doing? And I'm saying, it's okay. It's really okay. I have this. It's not going to be perfect, but we're here. We're being present. Um, I have another part that's distracted, that's hearing a siren outside. Um, I have another part that's feeling a lot of sadness. I just got some bad news about a mentor who's struggling with cancer. So there's a lot alive in us all the time. But I think the default mode is to ignore or shove these parts away, to kind of dismiss them. I've got this. I can do it. I don't need it. And the other option is to be curious, to be like, wow, you, you really care. Like you're really trying to get my attention. You're really trying to help me. Can I give you back some love and compassion? Because that, that nervousness I can recognize because I know this part, um, has been with me since I was very young and very shy. She's like seven years old and she really wants to fit in and she really wants to be liked because she's being homeschooled and she has a lot of anxiety about saying the right thing or doing, you know, so it's, it's also an opportunity to explore the root of these different parts and these little reactions in us. And then to choose, even with all of this confusion and um, life and energy that's inside us all the time, that we can offer these parts. You know, I'm, I'm also connected to self because I'm feeling very, um, very courageous and I'm feeling very connected and I don't really have a strong sense of calm right now or confidence, but as long as you can hold on to a few qualities of self, you can offer this energy to the others. And for me, this is the process that happens um, naturally in plant medicine experiences. Thank you for this eloquent um explanation i learned a lot so if i had to summarize it my interpretation is that family systems focus more on assessing your relationship with your parents your brothers your sisters your ancestors but internal family systems makes a distinction between the self the core self which has um, emotional states of being like calm confidence curiosity courage compassion creativity they're all c's i made a few notes i like that uh, six times c and then there's also parts that are your non-self, which are like when you're angry or anxious or depressed that can be triggered by other people. And by internal family system, you become more aware of those states that are your non-self. And then you can choose kind of to do something with it or not, but you become more aware of it. Um, that's my my uh, uh, summary. And um, uh, loneliness, for instance, is that also a non-self uh, state of emotion 
That's a great question. I think loneliness, well, first of all, thank you for the uh, eloquent summary. I'm going to use all of that next time someone asks me. Um, loneliness, I love that question because I feel that there's also a loneliness to true compassion as I experience it. Um, there can be I think you can feel, I think you can also feel an aspect of loneliness in compassion, but I would say that doesn't mean that I can't also have a lonely part. So I have a lonely part that maybe even if I'm with someone I love, sometimes I can feel lonely or when I'm alone, I can feel lonely and that loneliness, you know, is on these pathways in my brain from the very first time that I felt lonely all of these moments of loneliness are in there each time I think that I'm lonely again so the second step of um, internal family systems work the first step there's six steps but I'm trying to crush them in the first step if we can say is identifying the parts getting to know them mm -hmm. the second step is allowing them to unburden stored pain that they're carrying that's maybe not needed anymore. So there could be a great pain of loneliness that my lonely part is carrying because it was abandoned at some point and it felt like a major tragedy in that moment. I'm not needing to be affected by the gravity of that pain every time I feel lonely now. But if I've never had the chance to connect to that part and offer it this release, um, it can make moments when I would naturally feel lonely now feel much harder to handle. And so there's actually a way that we dialogue and get permission from some of these parts to work with the exiles that they're pr protecting underneath. The exiles are the younger wounded parts of us that are stuck in the past, stuck in the trauma of a past. And yeah, for me, it really mimics this communicating with the subconscious but you're still in your conscious state. It's kind of descending into this in-between. It's not hypnosis because there are steps um, and you're aware and you retain total memory, but you can actually dialogue and um, get to know these parts and offer these unburdening rituals to them. So it's happening in your imagination. Um, but because you're going back in a new space, you're going back in time to these events that were very triggering, very hard to handle at the moment. But you're going back with the self-energy. You can't do an unburdening ritual or release the pain unless you have the presence of self. So you have to first identify if there's a really lonely part. How do you feel towards this lonely part right now as you're hearing its story of what happened to it, that it was abandoned in this moment? And 
sometimes people are saying they feel frustrated or they wish it wasn't there. That's not a case where you can proceed with the unburdening steps. You need to first get to know more of the story until they feel something like compassion or some, until you can really feel that the presence of self-energy is there. And then you can go ahead and do some of these unburdening rituals to release the pain. And what's happening is that slowly through these different unburdenings, through these connections, you're building more harmony in your inner system so that instead of different parts taking over when different triggers arise, you already know the different parts in your internal system. And you can kind of recognize when they've been triggered and instead acknowledge them, offer them some love and appreciation because you know they're trying to help, but say, actually, trust me on this one. I can can handle it. You don't need to step in. So it's just allowing you, ideally, to be in more of a self-state more of the time. So step one is observing the emotions that are related to your non-self. Then step two is kind of unburdening these historical pains or that are still stuck in, in trauma. And you said that maybe you can't mention all the six steps, but now I am getting curious. Um, so do you want to share a bit about three to six as well? Or is that too much for now? Um, I kind of abbreviated. So let's, let's be accurate. So the first step yeah. is find which is just finding in your body where you have a a part present in the moment, right? I found this nervous energy in my stomach. The second step would be to focus on that sensation in your body, to bring all your attention there. And just, this is a point where often um, people's thinking parts will come in and kind of say like, oh, there's, there's nothing there or, um, I don't know, thinking parts say all kinds of things. And so if you notice that part there, say, okay, your thinking part, it does so much for you in the outside world. It's super, super important. But right now, just see if it's willing to trust you and soften and give you a little space because we want to focus on feeling more than thinking right now. So as you bring your focus there, you're trying to enter this state of calm. You're focusing on the sensation. Images or thoughts or memories will arise, which seem um, a lot of people want to dismiss them. Like, why am I seeing a yellow boat right now? We don't know. But if you follow this, it's all coming from your mind, right? If you follow the images that come, Usually they have a story. So that's the next step is fleshing it out. It's kind of getting to know, thanking the part for showing an image um, and finding out what does it mean 
Um, what is your role in the system? How do you help? What is your job? Because they're all, they're all doing a job. The nervous part is protecting me from being uh, rejected, right? It's afraid if it doesn't, if it doesn't warn me, maybe I'm going to say something that's not going to land well, and then later I'll be rejected. So they all have a role. It's getting to know them, their story, when they started, just asking them questions. That's fleshing it out. So find, focus, fleshing it out. Then befriend. This is where you're checking for the presence of self-energy and really trying to, to gain trust. You really have to have a lot of parts are very suspicious of the self. They're used to having to take over because they don't trust. They don't trust you that you're doing a good enough job on your own. Um, and, and then after that, you can unburden and heal. I see. So that's then actually the last uh, step. Well, thank you for summarizing this. I think uh, for me, it was really uh, insightful and um, interesting to see this distinction between the family systems and the internal uh, systems. And next time I feel lonely because I felt lonely the past few days that I'm aware, okay, this is one of those states that was maybe my non-self and then, then become more aware about it. Mm, one of the six C's that you mentioned as part of yourself is creativity. Mm-hmm. And before we started this conversation, you mentioned that in uh, an earlier podcast, you're talking about creativity. So my question is, what role does creativity uh, play in your life? Or why did you talk about creativity in that other podcast? Mm, yeah, so I think it was about 10 years ago. Um, one of my customers at my vintage store had a podcast on creativity. And so he just interviewed different people about creativity. And I have no idea what I spoke about then. I'll have to listen to it again and find out. Um, but creativity currently, I think the, the main role that creativity has in my life now is really thinking about what kind of, um, what kind of events I want to hold, what feels nurturing to me, what feels nurturing to the community, um, what feels interesting to me and how to kind of craft these events, what to, in terms of how I'm making the space, in terms of how I prepare myself, um, in terms of the programming, all of these things. I feel like this is really where my creativity is right now. And it has to start with connection to myself. Like I don't want to offer something that doesn't feel authentic to what I'm processing or going through at the moment. You know, I think it needs to be something that I'm excited about that I want to share in order for it to be, um, yeah, in order for it to just feel good for everyone. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of spiritual, um, events in Portugal, especially in the Lisbon area, especially in the Aracera area. And I love them. I go to, I go to lots of them. There's, um, amazing venues offering all kinds of stuff all the time. And I think my creativity comes into play and that 
I want to, I want to have a touch of spirituality because I, well, I mean, it's different for everyone. I guess for me at this point, spirituality is about connection to myself and connection to nature, but it's also kind of a, a connection to a more ancient way of being human. So I feel the most connected to, um, to self and to possibly higher states when I engage with ritual, when I acknowledge the four directions, when I kind of place myself or myself in time and space in a way that I can uh, imagine my ancestors also doing. Um, so I like to have a little bit of the spiritual, but I also wanted to feel very accessible to people because I feel like if people want really spiritual events, there's already a lot of that around. So I'm kind of trying to mix, like we had this, we have this amazing, um, sauna on the rooftop at Casa Aira with panoramic views of the ocean. It's really a special place. Ten people can be in there at a time, finish wood fire sauna um, in a way that could be enough for some people, right? You're, you're breathing, you're getting really hot, you're thinking about all these things. How much can I, can I stand it? Um, but I think it's also really accessible. Like everyone enjoys a sauna, especially on a rainy night or when it's super windy. Um, so we had a sauna and sound bath and because I have been working with, um, lavender this past month in terms of taking a tincture, um, doing a facial mist, drinking lavender tea, just kind of trying to get to know some of the plants around me in a deeper way. I brought in aromatherapy to, the sauna, um, I made sage um, smudge sticks with the lavender to give to people afterwards. I talked about the history of this plant. I mean, we all lived so much closer to plants in the in the past. Actually, the Romans um, named lavender. It's lavan, which is to wash because they used, it has antiseptic properties. And so the Romans used it in the baths for cleansing. Um, so to me, these are like little, little things. Maybe it's not so special to everyone, but to me, it's relevant. And I feel like they're little invitations to bring in um, some curiosity about another way of being or connecting to nature in yourself so that's my like little insertions of spirituality so you you unleash your creativity in your uh, programming and connection to self connection to nature touch of spirituality are important to you and you mentioned ancient ways of uh, being humans i mean you already touched on a few points but what are the key differences for you between ancient ways of being human and modern ways of being human for some reason, it always starts with Google Maps in my head. I'm so dependent on Google Maps, you know, like, oh, I'm going to go to this place. Like, let me look up the address. Let me plot out how exactly I'm going to get there. And one of my favorite things to do, especially when I get to a new city, is just to not look at the phone 
and just to walk, to really notice where I'm going and try to walk for an hour and try to come back the way that I came and to really find like, to orient myself for me, like connecting to, um, to the past it's with plants and it's with orientation. It's like knowing where I am, recognizing, seeing, knowing where the sun is coming up, where the sun is setting, where the water is having these positions and then trusting myself to, to be able to find the way and to come back. Um, and I feel that this is one of those common threads in all the indigenous cultures that I've ever heard of in the world is that this respect for the four directions is the beginning of the, of the medicine wheel, different qualities in the different directions. Um, in Arasara, we're really connected to the cleansing north wind. The house is pointing to the north and the wind comes up through the valley from the river and the ocean and is, uh, can, can be a really powerful force at times. Wow. Yeah, I, I um, uh, spent some time in Latin America and that's where I learned about the importance of the four directions and learning from some, some indigenous uh, uh, cultures. And uh, I agree when you're without Google Maps, you feel a bit different and maybe more ancient or more connected to nature. And you have to trust yourself a bit more instead of trusting uh, technology. Um, I think you're also passionate about uh, sound or sound healing. So how do you integrate sound in your offering or in your uh, programming? Yeah, so we have an amazing art piece slash instrument, which is a Gamelatron, um, handmade by Aaron Taylor Kufner from New York. And it's based on the Indonesian Gamelan orchestras, but it is a full-scale art installation. Um, and it's beautiful, beautiful songs that Taylor has composed specifically for this piece. And you hear them through the gongs, these bronze gongs that he, that were hand poured. And it's really a sound bath like no other. Actually hearing this Gamelotron, I heard this Gamelotron for the first time in 2007 or 2008 in New York City at a concert. And that led me to my first medicine journeys. So it's kind of come full circle for me to now have it at Casa Aira and be able to share it with people because this music touched me so deeply. I just had to know more and follow the trail. Um, but that's like one way that we love to share sound is through sharing the Gamletron. And I also use it at the beginning of my IFS sessions when clients, it really helps us to drop in and access those deeper layers. It's kind of like a, a surreal quick fix meditation for me, the vibrations from these gongs. Um, and other instruments I like to work with when offering sound baths are the crystal singing bowls, crystal tones, bowls, um, the shruti box. I love the drone sounds of the shruti box, the kochi chimes. Um, and I use the tuning forks also 
when people are in the sound bath to go around and, and put vibration of the frequency of the earth or a very low frequency at their heart chakra, at their third eye chakra. Um, I find it's like more of a communal experience than a concert. I also love music and love having concerts. I'm not, um, I don't identify as a musician, not a trained musician. I used to go to jams all the time in New York and love that creative collaboration. But I would never invite people to come hear a concert by me. But I do feel like, oh, I can offer you a sound bath and you are going to relax and drop in and connect to yourself and go on an interior journey that you can't necessarily just do on your own. So. I really like this idea of offering something different, offering something unique. I um, I do believe you because I uh, I have experienced um, uh, maybe one or two sound baths, and it's hard to explain, but it felt so relaxing lying down, and they were playing with these different instruments and and the, like a sound journey. So I do uh, uh, believe that uh, that is very powerful. The two of you, so you and your partner, are you actually also hosting your own retreats or are you only uh, offering the space to other retreat uh, leaders? Yeah, great question. At this point, we're still just offering the space to other people. And that came as a surprise to me too. Like definitely, um, I had just, I, I was teaching yoga in New York. I was planning to do retreats. I'm very into meditation. I mean, all of the things kind of fit. And I haven't felt the calling. I felt the opposite of the calling. As soon as we got there, I really received the message to invest in the community, to invest in myself, to offer the space, to take care of the space, to try to keep the energy of the space clean, but that it was going to be, um, that it wasn't the right time. And I'm, I've started like here and there, I'm planning a retreat. Like, of course, it's never going to be, no, I'm sure you can tell me, nothing is ever going to feel 100% perfect. At some point, you have to go ahead with what you want to offer. But I'm so um, I'm so in love with the work of IFS that I'm offering right now. I feel like I still want to focus on this and the community, and um, and be offering the space to other retreat leaders for now. But I'm always saying. Maybe in six months, maybe next year. It's like at some point I, I just have to uh, go for it and finish finish the planning. Um, but yeah, I think it's really important to listen, for me to listen to these messages, to be curious about them and to, and to give it time. Yeah, at this point it still feels, if I have my own, if I can just say, yeah. at this point it still feels if I just announce that I'm holding this retreat, it feels like I'm forcing it a little bit or pushing it. And I want it to come from a much more grounded and natural place. That's good. I think it makes sense. So now you focus on your IFS work uh, with clients. You focus on community and, and holding space for other uh, uh, 
were three facilitators. And you mentioned it should come from a grounded place. And um, earlier you mentioned before we started this podcast that you believe grounded facilitation and integration are important elements of, let's say, this field. Can you elaborate on why you believe that or what it means? Yeah. Um, so integration is easier for me to start with, I think. But in 2008 or nine, um, I went on a dieta in the Amazon. And I think I had eight um, ayahuasca ceremonies in seven days wow. with Shipibo Shaman. And I had very, very little experience before that. Maybe I had two ceremonies before in, in my life. And it was an amazing experience. I remember, you know, unique ceremonies and visions and teachings I had to this day that are relevant to me. However, when I got back to New York, you know, um, I had no idea how to integrate all of this. Like I had so much that had surfaced um, that was super intense for me. And I didn't know how to handle it. I had actually, I grew up in a fundamentalist evangelical Christian family that was pretty intense. Um, and so it was a big shift for me to experience all this. And definitely I was searching and curious, but it just shook everything up to such a degree that I had a really hard time adjusting back to regular life. I think I lost my job within a month of going back to New York. Um, I became really depressed. I was really struggling to make sense of everything that had come up and I didn't have the tools or the support that I needed. Um, and so I, along as I was looking for help, I discovered this concept of integration and over time, Integration became my passion and my focus. I was later working with another plant medicine healer, doing intakes um, for people, preparing them before and after the ceremonies, and really was able to um, offer the kind of support that I think makes medicine work so much more sustainable and so much safer for people. Um, now I also offer this work with IFS because a lot of people thinking about doing an experience will have a part of them that's very forward, that wants to achieve, that wants to grow, that wants to heal. But there can be a lot of other parts that they're shutting down and ignoring and not listening to that have concerns about safety that have concerns about emotional content coming up that are not on board. And so working with IFS and integration is one way. If you can get to know the parts that have concerns in advance, you can actually, um, I mean, I don't believe in having peaceful medicine experience per se, but I feel that it makes the work more, relevant because you're 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 honoring the work by preparing for it by attending to the parts that um you know whatever you suppress comes up 
So if you're really ignoring these parts before, they can turn into a big theme in your night, this anxiety about safety or this fear of the emotion coming up. And what if you had worked with those parts and given them some love and appreciation and calm beforehand? What other content would have been there for you? You'll never know. But I find it really helpful to do this work, not just before. People often think integration is just for after you've had a deep consciousness experience. It doesn't have to be psychedelics or plant medicine. It can be a meditation retreat. Um, It can be a difficult transition in your life. But it's also the preparation. Um, So, yeah, integration um, feels really important to me, and it's often the last thing that people think of when they're planning for an experience like this. Um, But I think it's so important. It's been so important in my own life and continues to be. And the second thing you asked me about is grounded facilitation. And that's kind of something um, has become more important to me since coming to Portugal because there's so much uh, consciousness oriented experiences happening here and i i know people who sign up for retreats with plant medicine based off of an instagram post that they saw without knowing so much about the facilitator and having uh worked in this field in the past closely with people I've seen some of the things that can go wrong. And so safety is a really big concern for me. And I think we owe it to ourselves, to our minds, to our bodies, to really carefully choose with whom. If you are going to do this, I actually, even though it's been so profound in my own life, I neither recommend nor condone the use of plant medicine or psychedelics. I think it's such a personal choice. I don't think it's for everyone, but I think it can be really beneficial to some people. And I think it deserves to be done safely. And also, um, so I'm, I'm concerned about the safety for individuals, but I'm also concerned in terms of the field that it can continue to grow and be accessible to some people and that's by all of us choosing if we work with it to do so in a safe way so i really encourage people to ask the facilitators before they choose to work with them um tough questions about like what's can you share a time that you had a safety concern and how did you handle it Um, to ask them how they're screening the participants, to ask them how they prepare themselves, to ask them how they handle the power of the role that they're in and the influence that they have over others in these delicate states. There's so many things. And again, like all lessons I've learned in my life, this was through, uh, this really became important to me because I worked with someone um, who is very gifted, very talented, and also very flawed, a human being. Um, and so I think what's the most important to me now is really trying to connect to the energy of the heart of the person offering it. What is their why? 
and how do they keep themselves accountable? And what is the energy also of the facilitator when they're answering these questions? Are they flustered? Are they put off? Do they not have the time for this? Do they want to tell you they have 400 good reviews? You know, just kind of notice how they hold their calm, how they hold their space, if they're willing, because I think grounded facilitators want people in their circles who are asking the tough questions, who are trying to proactively take care of their minds and bodies. And, um, and I also think grounded facilitators never advertise. That's good. Thank you for sharing your, uh, your wisdom. So the never advertising has become, they have such a credibility that it spreads automatically or it spreads by word of mouth. Yeah. I'm, I guess I'm open to being, uh, being proved wrong, but so far that seems consistent with my experience. Yeah. I think that uh, it can make sense. It comes from a, a truthful place and then one by one people people come. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. You touched upon uh, the topic of uh, things that you've learned during your life and the Soul Kitchen. Um, I'm also looking for recipes for life. So I ask everyone kind of what's your recipe for life that you want to share with the um, listener. Um, so do you have uh, a recipe that you would like to share? Mm. So many recipes. Um, I mean, really, I think the 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 simplest and the biggest for me. Well, there's two. The first one is just to to go inside, to close your eyes, and to breathe, and to be curious about what you are feeling, what you see what you see, what you feel, what you notice about your interior space, to really be curious about that, not to take it for granted. And the second one for me is just to connect with nature, is really like to take the time not to, I mean, you can do a hike, of course, or go for a swim, but for me, to take that time when I'm feeling like a little disconnected, to just go and find a place that speaks to me where I can breathe and sit and be still and notice the natural world around me is like an, an instant fix. So breathe and be curious about what you feel and connect to uh, nature. And I think connect to nature. These are two beautiful pieces of uh, wisdom. Well, I learned a lot uh, during this conversation. That's why I love this podcasting. Because it's kind of my way of studying a wide range of uh, uh, topics. And I'm very excited that uh, this summer we can host uh, our first retreat at your your space. Is there anything else that you would like to share with uh, the listener before we, um, we uh, yeah? Um, yeah, I'm just really grateful for the space and time to get to get to speak with you. Thank you for all of the of the questions and yeah, I also want to thank all of the listeners for their patience and curiosity as they try to understand what I'm talking about. And I really uh, recommend so many other podcasts about IFS as well that I'll send to you. Wow. Is there one that really stands out? Yeah, I really like um, 
Richard Schwartz is the founder of IFS and his podcast, No Bad Parts, is a really good place to start. I'll send it to you. No Bad Parts. Oh, well, thank mm-hmm. you for that. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your wisdom. And um, thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you. Bye.